I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I, I'm still seeking Tom Hello and welcome to another colossal episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we sample the fruit of contemporary young adult fiction, hunting for the next tasty treat and hoping to avoid the bitter taste of disappointment. On alternate episodes, we look to the books of our youth to see if they're made of finer ingredients or if memory alone has enhanced their flavour. My name is Laurie and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the monstrous Patrick Moon. Hi. Rah. The behemoth, Keith Rowe. Mmm, thanks for that. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Behemoth, maybe, is that oh, what you're looking nice for? <laughs> oh, nice. And the bestial, Bree. Hello. This episode, we've been subjected to a grim, emotional roller coaster ride by author Patrick Ness in his 2011 novel, A Monster Calls. Before we go on, a brief spoiler warning. I'm not going to line this spoiler warning with cheap gimmicks like cleverly embedded song titles, and I won't regale you with fantastic flawless accents, because this is not the book for such things. What I will do, though, is implore you to get your hands on a copy. Your local library should have a few. If you haven't, maybe you've seen the movie, so we won't be spoiling anything for you. If you've done neither, then this podcast might just spoil this story for you. On the contrary, it might just encourage you to read it a little more. But then I'm terrible at predicting how episodes will go. So why take a chance? Read it now. Dostoevsky wrote that. <laughs> Spoiler warning. <laughs> For those of you still with us, Bree, can we please hear page one of A Monster Calls? The monster showed up just after midnight, as they do. Connor was awake when it came. He'd had a nightmare. Well, not a nightmare. The nightmare. The one he'd been having a lot lately. The one with the darkness and the wind and the screaming. The one with the hand slipping from his grasp, no matter how hard he tried to hold on. The one that always ended with, Go away, Connor whispered into the darkness of his bedroom, trying to push the nightmare back, not let it follow him into the world of waking. Go away now. He glanced over at the clock his mum had put on his bedside table. 12.07. Seven minutes past midnight, which was late for a school night, late for a Sunday, certainly. He'd told no one about the nightmare, not his mum obviously, but no one else either, not his dad in their fortnightly or so phone call, definitely not his grandma, and no one at school, absolutely not. What happened in the nightmare was something no one else ever needed to know. Connor blinked groggily at his room, then he frowned. There was something he was missing. He sat up in his bed waking a bit more. The nightmare was slipping from him, but there was something he couldn't put his finger on, something different, something... He listened, straining against the silence, but all he could hear was the quiet house around him, the occasional tick from the empty downstairs, or a rustle of bedding from his mum's room next door. Nothing. And then something. Something he realised was the thing that had woken him. Someone was calling his name. Connor! (laughs) 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 
That's not quite how I imagined. <laughs> it's not how I imagined it either, hence the, hence the uh, flourish at the end there. If they had heard that, Bree, they wouldn't have cast Liam Neeson in the movie. <laughs> Connor, I have a very specialised set of skills. I thought, I, I thought you'd enjoy it. <sighs> I'm pretty sure it's actually more of a low, deep, grumbling, rumbling sound, but my voice doesn't go deep enough. Patrick? Maybe yours doesn't either, Laurie. So. Hey, Patrick. hey, hey. <laughs> that, that was so poor, Laurie. Come on. <laughs> All right, Patrick, put me to shame then. You sound like me trying to do an Elton John falsetto, but, you know, in reverse. <laughs> I've got to hear that now as well. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe later, boys. Do you want to give it a crack then, Pat? Uh Okay, let's. I, I have a, like intense performance anxiety now about Connor. <laughs> Not bad. Better than my attempt, anyway. I'll be ending it there. Keith, did page one grab you? It did. It grabbed me a lot, and not just your fantastic rendition of the U tree. Yeah, I really like this page one. It's great. It's got me hooked right from the get-go. You've got this small boy who has a family situation that's a bit unusual. Starting in in the dead of the night is a bit reminiscent of the BFG, and I am hooked already. It's very BFG, isn't it? Yeah. Laurie? Yeah, if this was a visual medium, you'd be seeing me twiddling my fingers in anticipation. I'm pretty hooked, too. Yeah, ditto. It was good. It's a good hot open. I love this shizzle, man. This is what I want. What about you, Brie? Totally agree. And in fact, I was actually even hooked. We read page one, but before page one, there's actually a little author's note, which says that Patrick Ness never got to meet a woman by the name of Siobhan Dowd, but that he picked up her story outline and then created this book. And I was like, wow, what an interesting concept. So I was actually hooked by the time I read the author's note. Mm. He had to pick it up and continue it. Well, he was asked to by the publisher because she died of breast cancer and she'd done an outline of the story. Hmm. Yeah, he took it from there and made it his own, which is why I think on the cover of the book it says, by Patrick Ness, based on the original idea from Siobhan. Dowd. Yeah, it's a pretty unusual birth of a novel I think and it's definitely something that draws you in a little bit especially given the subject matter of the book it's humbling in a way to have this piece of work that is somebody's final I suppose gift to the world that that you're picking up and and reading through and with all of those fears and insecurities that are being conveyed in it that must have been so real for her towards the end of her life it's quite intimate yeah, let's zoom out a little bit on the story, Pat. Where does it go from this intro? So, Connor, the protagonist that we just read about, is 13 years old and he has a bunch of problems. His parents are separated and his expat father has very little interest in engaging in Connor's life. He's bullied at school, he's haunted by nightmares, and his mother is fading after a protracted battle with cancer. He feels disconnected and isolated from his friends and family. And it's no wonder, then, that he's more intrigued than terrified when the yew tree in the backyard awakens and purports to be the green man, an entity as old as the hills and the stuff of legend. 
the monster notes that Connor has summoned him and calls for an exchange, story for story, tale for tale, three didactic fables in exchange for one truth of Connor's own. He talks of virtue failed, of justice gone awry, the dialectical nature of humanity, and the sometimes unsatisfying conclusions of stories. So with the aid of this monster, Connor begins to process his grief, loss, and intense sense of guilt about his mother's illness. How's that sound? Wow. That sounds great <laughs> to me, but one of the best yet. Very concise. Ah, oh, hang on. I was going to say goodnight, Mr. Tom. I mean, uh. you know, there's epic and then there's really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> C- certainly that was something else. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Bree. I'm not sure I'll say thanks to that, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that. It's It's a... Dear memory of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Keith, how did this book end up on your to-read shelf? Yeah, Before anything else, this is a book that interested me, so that got it a foot in the door. And the main reason for that is it's the type of fantasy that I like. It's what I would term low fantasy. Don't trust my classifications here, guys. Can you chime in and clarify? How is this fantasy? I'm still a little unclear. It's definitely a low fantasy. It does have a talking tree in it. Yeah, the talking tree pushes it into fantasy territory. Well, does it? I mean, I take you back to my argument in Gaiman's... Oh, gosh, it was so long ago. The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And I just... Anyway, I'll get onto it. I think you have a stronger argument here, in a sense, Brie. We'll talk about it later, I guess. Uh, From there, I also knew that there was a movie coming out, so it seemed like a timely choice. Someone I know also suggested another book by Patrick Ness, and that's The Rest of Us Just Live Here. So that was hopefully some further confirmation that I was onto a winner with this selection. Just on the movie front, I saw the movie was going to be out or going to be on at the Moonlight Cinemas in Centennial Park in Sydney in January, and I assumed that this meant that the movie was out or soon to be out in Australia. But for whatever reason, it only actually has an official release in March in Australia, though it's been out elsewhere since late 2016 and in some places early 2017. That's just downright rude, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, they don't really make it easy for Australians not to become dirty pirates, do they? (laughs) No. (laughs) It is getting better in that sense, but I guess something not as high profile like this can slip through and be positioned elsewhere for whatever reason. It does have a really promising cast and has been pretty well reviewed everywhere, so when it comes out I am planning to go see it. Maybe we can talk about that in a future episode. And finally, it has an interesting history, which we've already touched on here with the author's initial note in the book and Laurie Fildersin with the history. Yeah, Siobhan Dowd, she started writing this story when she was terminally ill with breast cancer and she died before completing it. And Dowd and Ness had, I'll correct you here, Laurie, an editor in common, and she Ah. felt that, that Ness was the one who could finish off the outline that Dowd had created. And compared to Dowd, apparently tends more towards fantasy, I think that's why he was a good fit to pick it up and run with the fantastical elements in there. What are some of her stories? What else has she written, just out of curiosity? I think she wrote a few young adult books, but I think they were more drama than fantasy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, This one obviously had a very personal side to it when she was writing it. Obviously, she was suffering from cancer herself, so it it was a big task for Ness to run with that. I think he's mentioned several times that... He wasn't restricted in where he could take the story, and he certainly didn't feel obliged to take it in a particular direction. He did tell his own story with her framework, which he felt she would have wanted, and I'm glad he did. And on that very cheery note, 
why don't we find out what we all thought about it? Before we do, I heard in an <laughs> interview that the monster was originally, when Siobhan was writing her outline, was originally more of a friendly, grandmotherly type of creature rather than a big, intimidating and threatening type of creature, which I found very interesting. Apparently, Ness said, oh, yeah, I don't write those kind of characters in his, <laughs> in his books, so he changed it. That's interesting. How do you feel about that change? I liked it. I liked the threat. It sort of meshed in very well with his own anxieties and, and uh, anger and building rage at one point. So I felt it mirrored his feelings at the time, his frustration. Yeah, I feel that way too. I don't think it would have worked quite as well with a monster if even you could call it a monster at, at that point, that wasn't in touch with some of those primal, negative, aversive sort of emotions, which were some of the things that Connor was really trying to get in touch with and acknowledge as the, the book wore on. I don't know. It depends on how that grandmotherly type character is written. I mean, some grandmotherly type characters can be at a... At a There's a perfect French expression, but it's not quite the same in English. At the same time, they can be both caring and yet have a very stiff upper lip and Mm. pull your socks up, young gentleman, that kind of stuff as well. It depends what the rest of the flavour of the story is. Yes, true. I I like the fact that we had these two monsters in there and the titular monster that calls could be either one of those. Mm. So if it wasn't this grandmotherly figure, she maybe wouldn't have been a monster. Mm. I like that element of sort of being a bit unbridled and out of control that this creature brought with it. Yeah, there was a raw power to it. Hmm. I wonder if they could have expressed that through Connor in a different way, though, to sort of bring that same thing out. Hmm. I liked it in the fact that it was a bit like Labyrinth. Be careful what you wish for, because when you're calling on these fae spirits, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. You're entering their world, their rules. Hmm. It's just the depths of his imagination. It's his subconscious. It's not an actual fae spirit. What about all the stuff on the floor? (laughs) (laughs) Sleepwalking. Oh, who knows? Fill us in, Brie, on on your thoughts. You've started already. (laughs) I've started already. I'm not saying that I didn't like it by saying it's just his imagination. What I'm saying is that I think that he has this huge imagination, this kid, Connor, and he's grappling with, as Pat said so eloquently in the synopsis, so much stuff. His mum's dying, his dad is absent, He's feels that he's been turned on by absolutely everybody at his school, he's coping with this horrible illness, he doesn't have an affinity for his grandmother who's the only other person that is in his mother's life that seems to care about his mum as much as he does but he doesn't observe that or he realises it too late. So this poor kid, he's got nothing but his imagination and he's closing himself in. I think it's really beautifully told as a result of that. I really, really dislike crying in books and movies. And this one, I could tell all the way through what was going to happen at the end. And obviously it didn't disappoint. I absolutely bawled and just could not bring it back in. And I know that that means that perhaps the author has done their job well because they've brought out this emotion. And this one was a really lovely telling of emotion and how he learned, I guess, to let it go and to let his mum go. 
Do you think you cried more or less than the one about the... Fault in our stars. Yeah. I think... Oh, I can't remember. Oh, oh, let me ask <laughs> that another way. What did you enjoy more? Sure, it's an emotional roller coaster, but out of those two books, which one do you think hit you more? I preferred this one. I preferred yep. that raw emotion, and I felt that it was much more real. I felt that it treated Connor's relationship with his mother so well. I thought it treated his relationship with his grandmother very well, that in the end there was this grudging admiration, I guess, in some ways, that this recognition that his grandmother loved her daughter just as he loved his mum and that that was something for them to bond over. I thought that was just beautifully told. And the learnings from the monster, I thought, were really well played out. These three fables where endings aren't always happy and stuff happens, and I thought that was much better. People don't always get what they deserve or what you perceive that yeah. they deserve. Yeah, that's right. It's the idea of good versus evil, and there's characters that aren't either of those distinctly. Mm. Mm, I think mm. the stories that had that theme of it's not about what you say, it's about what you do. And that really meshed into the ending of the book because, obviously, a big spoiler, but we warned you that when his mother dies, uh, the big nightmare that he'd been dealing with is the fact that he wanted her to die because it was so tough for her to linger on for him. Mm. But at the end of the book, he told her that he didn't want her to go and, and then... He makes a positive action that he realises that he really doesn't and the guilt fades. So those stories, I think they were all about, for me at least, they were all about instead of the characters that were saying that they were going to do good things or saying the right things, it was more about what they did. Hmm. The other thing I thought that was interesting was the way that Connor was trying to be invisible at school. So uh, he had had this friend, Lily, who had told everybody that his mum was dying, I presume, that she would have used those exact words. And so then all of a sudden Connor feels that everybody around him is, oh, poor Connor. And so in some ways he becomes invisible, but to them it's like he's trying to play this poor me character. I don't know if that's how you all felt, but it felt to me like the bullies were bullying him because he was trying to be invisible. <sighs> Does that make sense? Yeah. He was trying to be a bit more woe is me type. And then he fights back, and I think that's pretty powerful. I think he was seeking victimisation. He was seeking to be bullied. Yes. He was seeking recognition because everyone else was ignoring him because they didn't know how to interact with him because of this terrible thing that was happening in his life. When you can't relate to that, I guess in an attempt to not say anything harmful or whatever, for whatever reason, they basically ignored him. So he got from Harry recognition of his existence, which I thought was a really strange and hard to interpret relationship that he had with the bully. It was more than recognition of his existence. It was that he wanted to be punished by the bullies for the feelings that he had. From Harry, the bully, he was getting the punishment and the brutality that he wanted and that he felt he deserved for himself. And ultimately, because Harry is a really insightful bully, he recognises that the, the way to hurt him most is to set him aside and ignore him and not give him that punishment, not give him what he wants. And that's when he finally snaps. Mm. Yeah, that's a change in the relationship there. I think that happens gradually through the bullying that Connor seeks out the punishment. And Harry's like, you're freaking enjoying this. Mm. To counter his own guilt. So exactly right. So when Harry realises that, it's like, oh, I, I need a better way to hurt him. And the only way is to, like everyone else, ignore him and pretend he doesn't exist. Yeah. 
there was a balance of that recognition from people because the only two people really that gave him recognition were Harry and Lily. His friend who he had also fallen out with because she was originally the one who had sort of spread about the knowledge that his mother was ill. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Bree. I also cry in The Wizard of Oz, so, you know, <laughs> I'll just put my crying into context. Which part? Is that from the acting or...? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Dorothy leaves Oz and goes back to Kansas. It's very sad. Because Kansas is a horrible place. I don't know. I've never been to Kansas. Is <laughs> it a horrible place? You never will now. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my thoughts. Patrick? I really liked it, and I liked it for a lot of the same reasons, that it had a real emotional core to it that was something that, like I said, was beautiful and felt a little bit intimate. I liked the characterization. I liked the monster a lot. That personification, whether it be fantastical, whether it actually be in reality of those emotions, the grief and loss and guilt and and anger was so freaking powerful and it, it worked really well. And one of the things that I suppose my kind of unique contributions to this section might be that I enjoyed that whole theme of addressing your emotions and addressing aversive emotions because this is something that seems to pop up more and more for children in contemporary society is that they have all these things going on for them, rattling around in their brain, these emotions that are negative, this anger and sadness and and grief and loss, which are normal parts of life. But nobody knows how to deal with it. Everybody says, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Just forget about it. Let's be happy. Let's do something else. And so we end up with this mass of humanity of children that push away their negative feelings, that push away loss and push away death and push away grief and anxiety and don't know how to function with the stuff that makes you human. So they've been taught that 50% of what you feel is wrong or incorrect or undesirable and the product of that is this kid Connor who feels so at sea with these emotions he feels humiliated and guilty about his feelings that he can't handle the situation that it would be easier if his mother died it would be easier if this was all over and so the story the real heart of the story is him coming around to anger and maybe not expressing it in the most healthy fashion, given that he beats the absolute shite out of his bully. But accepting those emotions and recognising those emotions and embracing those as a legitimate part of his experience and integrating those with the way he responds to his mother's illness. I've actually been reading a lot of parenting articles recently, which are about every time your child gets angry, Instead of you snapping and immediately getting angry at the child, acknowledging what they might be feeling first and then dealing with whatever the consequence of their anger or their frustration or their tantrum or whatever it is. This is my entire life outside of podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good-o, tick. I'll continue on with that one then. (laughs) But yeah, it's a real problem and it, it that is a, a natural kind of reaction, I think, for a lot of parents towards their children is to say, you know, make that go away. Like, I don't want to particularly see that. I don't want to see you sad or angry. So put that away, get rid of it and be something else. And it's not healthy. People continue to do it as adults. People run away as adults mm. from their feelings, their emotions and their problems and 
it doesn't lead to good things. So it was nice for me in that sense. It felt like it had a real heart and a real centering in humanity and in the psychology of grief. It was fantastic. Do you guys have anything else to say on that? Otherwise, Keith, I'll throw it to you. Uh, I'll just pick up your point on the bully, which is kind of not where you left off, but I'm surprised Bree didn't mention something about that, the brutality that was returned towards Harry. Did you have any particular thoughts about that? I didn't actually find that reaction quite so shocking <gasps> as I did. You guys Excellent. have... Um... Yes, we've conditioned you. <laughs> <laughs> we were right all along, Laurie. <laughs> we need to compare this to the Rangers Apprentice episode where Brie yes. and I both had a very strong reaction against the uh, violent response to bullying. I think here, for some reason... No, not for some reason. I think here I felt that this kid had gone through so much crap and he had all of this pent-up emotion, hurt, anger, rage, grief, all of this big, enormous stuff packaged up that he hadn't and he'd been pretending to be going on through life and he'd been had this facade, whether or not it was, you know, him putting this victim on or whatever, but he had this pent-up ball of energy and he just unleashed. I just felt that it was over and done with and I may have skim read it, but nonetheless. He'd been subjected to both physical violence and then ultimately psychological violence, which was the real killer, I think. So it's not like he had all these emotions that burst out and resulted in him hitting an innocent person. This person had been asking for it for a long time. And it was written pretty sensitively as well. I mean, he talks about having his cut-up hands and then you hear about the consequence Mm. of this kid. His nose is never going to be straight again or something. I think his teeth were never going to be the same again. He had a broken nose and a broken arm and all sorts. They weren't whacking each other with sticks, (laughs) for example. Love that. I don't know. That may have happened in some other book we read. That was another marker for the Fantastic as well because it was commented that what didn't seem possible that one boy could cause so much damage... He had a sort of preternatural strength that was maybe granted by being possessed by the monster. Exactly. It's adrenaline and months and months and months and years of... Getting swole by lifting weights. Crap stuff (laughs) happening in his life. Anger at his dad for being absent and taking on this new woman and this new child and ignoring him and all of those things would have started it as well. I'm surprised you didn't comment on other fantasy books that we've read that mesh with the real world. Like, oh, no, Edward was just a anemic boy with uh, a penchant for glitter makeup. <laughs> Bree, nothing to say? I don't understand the context. You're saying that you don't seem to believe... Well, certainly in the last two books where there's... They're not fantastical. To me, honestly, you're reading it through... This boy, he's a child, he's 12 years old. You're reading it through his emotion. You're reading it through his world in his head because he hasn't had human relationships in a long time. He's got no friends at school. He's got his mum who's focused on other things. She flits in, she flits out, she sleeps a lot, she's unwell, she vomits, She she's dealing with her illness. He doesn't have a relationship with his grandmother. His father's not there. He's on his own. I feel like the consequence or the the consequence of that is that your imagination just runs wild. You've got nothing to bounce your ideas off, so you're trying to process this stuff in your own mind. Of course it's his imagination. 
And his mum has this relationship with the yew tree. She watches it from her window. It all sort of triggers this story and this emotion in his mind. Mm, I think it gives him the emotional energy to summon the creature. Because at one point, the tree is growing through the floorboards in the house. That's not something... It's very clear when you're inside Connor's head and when the story is being told external to him, and, and that wasn't inside his head. And I don't think a boy would have had the insight to be able to relay those stories that he had to then process. They're not stories that gave him the answers of how to get better or how things are going to go. I think it took him time to process what the meaning of the story is and what it meant to him and how he could ultimately deal with his fears. Yeah, that's probably a stronger point than the actual physical presence of the tree. The fact that he didn't understand the stories and that he unlocked his own understanding through them is a marker for the fact that it wasn't his imagination, Mm. in my reading. To be fair, though, it's not explicit either way. Definitely not, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's the thing with most of these books, is you can read them whatever way you want, really, and there is seldom going to be an answer one way or the other. You can read it in an allegorical kind of sense if if you want to, but it's clearly open to go the other way. Agreed. I'll tell you all what I think now. I'll get it out of the way first. I really liked the lead character, Connor. I found him to be believable, relatable, and his arc was rewarding. It wasn't in a buoyant, uplifting sense, but it had a very real significance and tenor. Phew, characters got a tick. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I felt the writing was perfect in that it wasn't at all obtrusive to the story being told and it only served to let me enjoy the book even more. There was passages there that were still worthy of highlighting. One in particular stood out to me. That's, your mind will believe comforting lies while also knowing the painful truths that make those lies necessary and your mind will punish you for believing both. That's really quite a powerful set of words. Mm, It's a little exercise in doublethink, wasn't it? Yeah, and the fact that you're ultimately punished for believing both, and that's something that Pat was touching on quite heavily there, that people run from problems and create alternate realities to avoid dealing with them, and that's what Connor was doing here. That was a a constant throughout the book in a lot of ways, though, and the conceptualizations of a lot of those things now, those supposed opposites, is that it's okay to have those. You can have these dialectical beliefs of people being good and bad or wanting things to stay the same, wanting things to change, not wanting your mum to go, but also feeling like maybe she should go because it's hard and it's difficult for you. And so in some ways, it's about accepting that people aren't one way or the other, that your thoughts aren't one way or the other, that there aren't going to be inherent contradictions and that there's nothing necessarily wrong with contradiction. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. And that's part of what Laurie was saying as well with the thoughts versus actions. It's fine to think certain things, which has played out in many of the stories that the U-Tree told, but it's how you act that you can be judged on, and that's the ultimate truth of the situation. It was a book with many strong messages, but I didn't find it to be at all didactic, which is really good because there was no patronisation or preachiness to the way the story was presented. It was really heavy with themes of loss and guilt and forgiveness. Can you imagine being this 13-year-old, completely racked with guilt, with basically no support system, suffering this horrible ordeal of his mother dying and just wanting it to be over? It's really something difficult to even comprehend. The pity and attempts at understanding he gets from his teachers, it only increases his guilt, anger and resentment, and it highlights this situation where people are trying their best, but it's not helping things, and it really highlights the fact that it's about dealing with your own issues or building your own support systems and ways of getting over issues, which he ultimately does through the yew tree. 
he's kind of at an impasse with all of these authority figures too because he's acting out like punish me punish me and everyone's mm. like well what's the point like you've got the worst existence imaginable why would we consider punishing you yeah exactly so he tries it with well he expects punishment from his grandmother when he destroys her sitting room and her favorite clock and also when he beats harry to a pulp he expects punishment but doesn't get it and that's even more frustrating for him at those points what this book made me do is reflect upon the people who are important to me and contemplate how devastating their loss would be and that's really the emotive final chapters of the book tears were streaming down my face as I was reading it I had a four-year-old climbing all over me but I was still caught up in that world and feeling the connection to my own world and how I would deal with such losses and just was pretty emotional there were a couple of things that were pretty apparent from early on when reading this book firstly there was no way that his mum was ever going to get out of this alive yeah I feel like that's not really Mm. a spoiler no not at all she was going down yeah. If it had gone down that path, this book would have been quickly forgotten if it managed to get published at all. I personally would have felt cheated if that had happened. And the other thing it ties into the first, really, but the U monster was always coming for Connor. It wasn't coming for his mother and it tried to insinuate that maybe it was coming for the mother. But really, we knew it was for Connor and for his emotional growth. But knowing these things really didn't affect my enjoyment of the book at all because it was really great and I loved it. There was quite a few parallels to draw between this and the Book of Lost Things, actually. Laurie, what did you think? I guess I don't have too much to add. The thing that I really loved about the book, though, was the green man or the yew tree. I think Patrick Ness treats the audience like he treats his child character, like with real respect. I read somewhere that he doesn't really treat them like children that you can maybe easily dismiss or just say, yeah, you'll be right, like Patrick was saying before. He really treats them as people with real problems. And in the same way he respected his character, I think he respected his audience by having the green man have such complicated and morally ambiguous stories. And you really had to dig deep and question who was the villain in each of the stories and and what it meant to Connor. And it's that kind of vague and unclear storytelling that really struck a chord with me. And that evoking of thought was probably the best part of the book. It's not really something that you see elsewhere, is it? There's a, a lot of young adult fiction in particular tends to go for a straight-down-the-line message. Right, yep. And this one eschewed that almost entirely. I remember feeling a little bit shocked at the end of the first story in the same way that Connor was. I'm like, oh, wow, yes. Shocked because you're right, we don't see it very often, and it immediately struck me as excellent writing. That was probably the standout. And just so we've got all bases covered, yeah, man. (laughs) Tears streaming down my face for minutes. It was really, really evocative, really emotional, and I I loved it. I must be on the the outside here because I didn't really find it particularly sad-making. I found it had a real nice emotional core. It touched a lot of emotional topics really well and handled it really well, but I didn't find it particularly sad. Did you cry in A Fault of Our Stars? Yeah, I think I did. That's interesting. I think because this one treated Connor so respectfully, I think that brought out more emotion in me, whereas the other two were kind of this, what was it? I can't remember their names, but the two protagonists. Hazel and Augustus. Oh, well done. Good call. They were so jokey light-hearted right the way through. I don't know, it was a bit different. I cried more in A Fault in Our Stars, definitely. Hmm, okay. 
We'll have to do like a milliliter recording of our tears <laughs> so we can accurately compare the books. Yeah, let's get scientific with this stuff. None of this sort of wishy washy. I think I cried more. In... I'll just do a like a poll of the people on the train. <laughs> so you remember back in March when I was weeping like a baby again? <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of 0 to 10, how distraught would you say I was? <laughs> what else did you think, Laurie? Yeah, I think that pretty much covers for me. I really am looking forward to the movie. Patrick Ness apparently did the screenplay for the movie, and the effects are supposed to be quite good. I'm actually really looking forward to the movie too. I sent you the trailer a little while ago, and so I was excited to see the book on the, uh, the list. Mm, and for me, this book really came out of nowhere. A lot of the books that we choose or books that we've read in the past, even if all of the hosts haven't read them before, we generally have them on our radar somewhere. But this one was completely out of the blue. I had no idea and I was shocked by its quality, especially given who picked it. (laughs) I was waiting for that. I hadn't read anything about it. And I said to Laurie last week, so is this actually about a monster or am I going to cry? And he goes, you're going to cry. <laughs> Are they the two alternatives for books for you? It's either got a monster or you cry. <laughs> well, you know, a monster calls. I was like, oh, God, am I going to have to read about a monster? I'm like, surely Keith wouldn't do that to me. Thanks, Keith. You're welcome. Shall we move on? Yeah, Laurie, you had something you wanted to talk about. You had some uplifting discussion points, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> I do indeed. This book, obviously, one of the major themes in the book is death and dealing with death. And I had a few questions for you all. So we'll just go around the table. The questions are, particularly on death, have you ever nearly died? <laughs> Uplifting. Ooh. Keith? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Oh, really? I did faint once, but thats I don't think I was close to death. Did you faint, like, on the edge of a volcano, leaning towards a magma pit or something? <laughs> no, I fainted on the edge of a chemist counter, leaning towards a box of something. Mm. And that's the closest you've been. You were reaching for the pseudoephedrine and passed out, did you? <laughs> I think I was waiting for pseudoephedrine. That's uh, the chemist system in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember you talking about this, actually. It was, it's not that long ago, like in the past couple of years, maybe? Yeah, it was last year. Mm. Yeah. Keith, go on. I've got nothing further to add. Except you seem surprised that I haven't almost died. Well, I would have thought, you know, maybe a traffic accident or... You're universally reviled. Has no one had a crack at killing you? <laughs> well, that's what I was getting at, not that I know about. A couple of authors maybe lining up the shot. A few splinters, yeah, as a bullet flies past. Patrick? I don't have any that I can think of, really. I did... When I was a kid, I went to an Australian theme park and... I got on one of the roller coaster rides that had several kind of loops halfway around the track. So you, you do go upside down on a couple of occasions. A fairly intense one. I was on it with my dad. He was sitting next to me. I, I must have only been 10 years old or something like that. And we were on the big ramp that leads up. You know how like the cars make that like click, 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 yeah. click <laughs> a sound as you're ascending? Totally the worst part of any roller coaster. Yeah, it's pretty stressful, but mine was made more stressful because I lifted up the seatbelt thing whilst we were ascending. I'm like, oh, this isn't actually locked or anything. (laughs) This isn't secured. I'm not actually being held into this cart by anything other than potentially my upper body strength, which at 10 years old was (sighs) not spectacular and remains not spectacular. (laughs) And so I think I told my dad and just saw like, 
panic light up in his face as he's like jiggling this thing and trying to get it to lock in and trying to secure it so that I don't go tumbling out of the roller coaster on the first loop. (laughs) I think we got like up towards the top and finally just heard that like click sound, but I still was absolutely wetting myself the entire time. Like, am I actually, is it actually locked? Am I actually going to be secure? And I didn't enjoy my experience at all. I think that's probably the closest I've come. That sounds pretty close. Yeah. That's a pretty good story. <laughs> How long after that before you went on a roller coaster again? Uh, me, 20 minutes. My dad, not at all. <laughs> really? 20 minutes? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I got back on another one of the rides. One of the ones that was slightly more modern and had the electronic locking system on the seatbelts. You couldn't have paid me to get back on the one, the previous one. What about you, Bree? I don't want to discuss my teenage years. No, I'm joking. I've never really been anywhere near it. It's like Pulp Fiction, was it? You needed the EpiPen. (laughs) I got stung by a bee once and my entire leg blew up, so I don't want to repeat that experience. No. That sounds painful. That could happen. That's a realistic one. Roller coasters are no longer a threat to me because I'm never getting on one again in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Bees can't do much about. Kind of need them for food. Laurie, you must have a good story if you've asked it. No, not really. I mean, I've been in a car that's rolled and I think my imagination has played tricks on me over time because when I originally was telling the story, I told people that rolled three times, but according to the person driving at the time, it only flipped onto its roof, so that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that might have been the closest. The other time is I almost drowned twice in my life. Once was at the beach and once was in a pool, so I'm not sure what's closer, the car crash or, or drowning. Was there any particular reason that you almost drowned or just... At the beach, it was because I was caught in a massive wave and got caught spinning underwater and couldn't tell which way was up. I think I ended up bashing my head against the ground, very low on oxygen, and then after I'd whacked my face on the ground, I discovered that's where the ground was and then kicked off as hard as I could and burst up just in time. You were cleverly reorienting yourself. Yeah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) By uh, sandpapering my face, yeah. (laughs) And the other time were three bullies who I still think about from time to time that were trying to drown me. Shout out to Laurie's childhood bullies. Three pricks in Tamworth. Hi, hope you're in jail. (laughs) (laughs) This is why in the Rangers Apprentice, a monster calls, you have such... Compassion for the victim, I suppose, and bloodlust <laughs> as far as the bullies are concerned. Yeah, absolutely. I have zero compassion for violent bullies, no matter what their background. I think there was a drowning scene in The Ranger's Apprentice, wasn't there, with Horace? <laughs> was there? I think so. Hmm. Next question. What's the most likely cause of your death as far as you can foresee? Oh, this is actually grim. <laughs> well, it's going to get better. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Pat? Oh, man. Like, statistically, it's got to be cardiac illness. Yeah. Mm. I can't foresee anything other than that. Yeah, I think it's the same for me. It's mm. got to be a heart attack, right? Preceded by dementia, probably. Oh, yeah. oh that's cheerful. Thank you. <laughs> Jeez, well done, Laurie. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Keith? Don't let yeah, me get to that it's point. cardiac or the other big C for me as well, I think. Mm. All right, let's turn this around then. How would you like to die? Like, if you had the choice, if you had... <laughs> it reminds me of that Monty Python scene. Yes! Which is absolutely phenomenal. So, if you could pick the method, how would it be, Pat? Oh, 
holy crap. I'm tempted to go for the gag answer, which probably does have a lot in common with the Monty Python scene. It involves so many naked women. It's just <laughs> like, it's hard to describe. But No cliff? No, yeah, maybe no cliff. I don't like the cliff bit. In reality, though, I mean, I could just read my way out, video game, my way out at 120, like just the book dropping on my face as I reach the final page of that year's best-selling fantasy novel. It's probably the final book in Patrick Rothfuss's (laughs) series. I was going to make the same joke. (laughs) (laughs) The Doors of Stone, here's to you, Patrick Rothfuss, get it out. (laughs) It's book six of uh, Song of Fire and Ice. (laughs) (laughs) Both equally valid jokes in that context. I'll probably be crushed beneath the weight of those times. What about you, Keith? Yeah, I'd like to die just of extreme contentment. Wow. Die of extreme contentment. Are we talking mid-coitus or...? <laughs> oh, God. I wasn't going that direction, but... <laughs> I guess not mid-coitus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bree, <laughs> clean things up a bit, please. Or don't. You're more than welcome to get the other way. <laughs> I think I'd like to have... Intercourse. Well, A, written my bucket list. Oh. B, ticked everything off the bucket list mm. and then be a ripe old age of which I'm comfortable with all of my faculties, close my eyes one night and that'd be it. I think that would be amazing. I don't know about amazing. Live life to the fullest. Have ticked off everything you've wanted to, been happy. Satisfied. It's like yeah. beating the final boss and then being like, well, that's me. I've wrapped it 100% on this game. Time to check out. Yeah. I can't identify with that, but yes, Okay. You need to battle some more bosses then. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because <laughs> my ideal death would be to be surrounded by my friends and family of whom I would be completely oblivious because I'd be jacked into VR. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Virtual reality. <laughs> They're all cheering you. They're like, he's got a high score. No, I'd be slaying a dragon and the dragon would be slaying me and it'd be this big moment because the game would be able to determine exactly when I'm going to fall off the perch. So at the very moment I strike the killing blow into a dragon as a trio of scantily clad elf witches stand by. (laughs) You force your entire family and friendship group. Well, they could be watching the screen. All three of us. (laughs) They, They will know that I've gone out doing what I love. Oh, God. We could be in the VR world alongside you. Killing dragons and saving elf wenches. Dude, me. I'd be quite happy going out on an ice rink too. That would be enjoyable. But you might do that in the next few years. (laughs) I don't know about that. Fingers crossed that doesn't happen, but you never know. At least you guys have my sort of final will now, you know, that you can, without it being a platitude, you can tell everybody it's how he wanted to go. No, seriously, listen to the podcast. It's how he wanted to go. It's (laughs) documented for all time. (laughs) Get working on that dragon. Programmers. (laughs) Programmers. <laughs> um, You're talking to yourself. Yes, true. No, I'll never be a video game programmer. Far too clever. They are. If that dragon's going to be on a spreadsheet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, final question. Given that the green man or the yew tree has been interpreted by some as death and the harbinger of death and, I guess, helping a mortal deal with that, 
What is your favourite representation of death in popular culture? So it could be from movies, comic books, TV shows, books, whatever. Uh, what's your favourite incarnation or representation of the death character or Grim Reaper? Bree? Oh, I knew you'd do this to me because <laughs> you know I don't have any. <laughs> None at all? Well, I actually, besides Harry Potter, I can't, I couldn't think of one. And so I even ended up Googling like Buffy, which is a series that I loved. And I remembered, thanks to Google, that the first evil is probably as close as it comes in the Buffy series. And that's not bad. It's this manipulative incarnation of evil that gets into people's minds and plays on their doubts and their insecurities in order to gain power. But it's not about leading them to their death. Mm, Okay. What about you, Keith? When you first posed this question to us, I completely misinterpreted it. I thought you were asking favourite deaths in pop culture as opposed to favourite personifications of death. Lowercase d rather than uppercase d. Exactly the distinction. So I did have to jog my memory on this, but there was three that were sufficiently jogged, and the first of those is The Meaning of Life, where the Grim Reaper attends a dinner to inform everyone there that they have just died of food poisoning. That's a classic. It is. That's a fantastic film all around. It's been referenced several times tonight. Yeah, it is good. It makes me really want to watch it again. <laughs> well, one of the others is Bill and Ted, where they battle the Grim Reaper in games of chess and it's firstly best of three and it proceeds on to best of some ridiculous number from my memory anyway don't they play battleship is it yeah oh maybe it is (laughs) i remember chess for some reason more highbrow in your remembering (laughs) exactly this is bill and ted we're talking about here laurie it's not some childish movie pretty sure he's got some accent like maybe russian or hungarian or something he's like you sunk my battleship (laughs) do you want to have a go at that keith uh, Hungarian, yeah, go for it <laughs> No, I won't <laughs> It'll just offend people And the last one, I remember there being a Grim Reaper character in Family Guy That was a little humorous on occasion Pat? It's a good question I feel like there should be more of these that I can remember But I'm completely snookered I can't believe you guys even came up with one. Like, I could not think of a single thing. I was, like, a little bit like Keith thinking, oh, yeah, there's a few great death scenes, but death as a concept? Death is a popular man slash woman slash entity. Some serious representations out there. Until I came across you three, like... You hadn't thought about death so much. (laughs) (laughs) Two, let's be honest. I'll put you on my side here, Keith. (laughs) Until I met you two, I had not even, like, heard of this, and I believe that I would have looked at Laurie like he was a little bit crazy when he was first explaining the Sandman to me. Okay. Well, the first one that uh, came to mind for me was Supernatural, the TV series featuring handsome boys, Sam and Dean Winchester. <laughs> <laughs> would you prefer to go out with thousands of naked women or just those two dudes? <laughs> oh, man. If I can revise... <laughs> My previous answer, like doing something wild with R.L., Sam and Dean Winchester, going on some (laughs) badass hunt and riding in that Impala would be the ultimate way to go, preferably at an old age. Like tracking down a Wendigo or something? Yes, tracking down a Wendigo. Classic first season callback, by the way, Laurie. I think it's the first episode and the only (laughs) one I've watched. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, death appears in Supernatural, which as it goes along, they elevate the themes a little bit away from 
things like Wendigos and insects that eat you to you know, heaven, hell, angels, death and all the horsemen kind of thing. And uh, they do a good job. I like it. The Reapers sort of exist in that as a kind of bunch of entities that are overseen by death as their point man. The other ones I thought of were Terry Pratchett's Sassy and All Caps Death, which was fantastic. He was one of my favourite characters in all of the Discworld novels, actually. I never felt Rincewind very much, but I absolutely loved Death. And the last one that I think only came to mind because of its recency and because I've talked to Laurie about it a bit, are the Shinigami in Death Note, who are kind of like death. They're sort of gods of death, aren't they? They are, yes. I love the art style, the humanity, the kind of bickering and backstabbing and nastiness that goes on with the Shinigami and that element of toying with people in the world. Do you like them? Am I off base with them, do you think? No, I definitely would have had them in my list if I was picking multiple, for sure. Ryuk, in particular, just, I loved him. He was an adorable death god that was messing with humanity. (laughs) Well, what are yours? I'll just pick one, I guess, and that would be Death from the Sandman series, who ended up getting her own comics. And she was just too cool for school. Instead of being the Grim Reaper, which is a typically male or a skeletal creature in a black cloak and a big scythe. She was like this 80s gothic kind of punky girl with an upbeat attitude, but is still death. So, but like reaping souls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the comic book series in which she features, the Sandman, she's one of the many gods that start with D. She's death and her brother is Dream, for example, who is the Sandman himself. They're just excellent, really well-written Neil Gaiman comics. And there's some really great quotes that come out of that series about death. I still need to get my hands on those. I'm ashamed to say that you've been recommending them for, holy crap, like 10 years, maybe? Probably, yeah. And I still haven't read them. Yeah, she's just such a quirky incarnation of death and totally opposite to all the other imagery that you've seen of her. I'll say death from the Sandman series. I enjoyed that different take on death as a character because it kind of reflects a different attitude towards death as a concept. Mm. It seems, I, I'm not sure where I, I read it, but they sort of talked about the great taboos of human history and how we've sort of shifted from sex in the earlier times in our history, I suppose, to death now. We're kind of saturated in sex, but death is something that we're absolutely terrified of. Whereas a lot of Older cultures kind of almost reveled in death and saw it as a a natural extension of life and existence. So I like that we can kind of perspective take a little bit because I think it's necessary. It's interesting you mentioned humans being terrified of death. I guess it's obvious in some ways. But there was another podcast I was listening to just a couple of days ago, actually, on a car trip. And it was a like a radio play version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of Red Death. And spoilers, I guess, if you haven't read or heard it, some of the characters are walled in in this town or in this castle and have this sort of magical shield around the castle preventing the Red Death from getting into the building. They're doing everything they can to remain shielded while he wreaks havoc across the land. And it was just a really excellent take on the Edgar Allan Poe classic tale. So... Yeah, I highly recommend it. I think the podcast is called The Dark Tome, and it's not part of their normal series. It's like a once-off episode. So, yeah, it was an excellent story involving death and the avoidance thereof for as long as possible. Cool. 
Can I switch us back to the question that I thought you had first asked? Yeah, sure. Can we note some of our favourite deaths in pop culture? Ooh. Beaches. Beaches? Ah. Done. I'm out. <laughs> Next. Good one. I haven't seen Beaches. It's a movie, right? What? Yeah, it's a tearjerker. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Beth Midler. She's amazing. I'm going to throw out spoilers here. I'm going to say Maximus in Gladiator was a pretty phenomenal death. You should probably mention the movie before you mention the person <laughs> when you're spoiling something. <laughs> I'm going to throw out spoilers here, but in Gladiator, <laughs> Gladiator, Gladiator, listeners, <laughs> when Maximus dies, that's a great death. Hmm, I'd forgotten about that one. What about you, Keith? You'd been thinking about it the longest. Yeah, I thought about it too long because I've got a list of like six here. Holy schmoly. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's Batman's apparent death in... Dark Knight Returns. So you're not even real deaths. <laughs> number one apparent death. Number one death with a walking stick. Number one death while hang gliding. I'll build up to a real death. Rorschach in The Watchmen. Mm. Augustus in The Fault in Our Stars. I thought you were going to say Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. <laughs> <laughs> he should have died being sucked up into that uh, chocolate tube thing. Snape and Dumbledore in Harry Potter. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Tulsa Doom in Conan the Barbarian, and so, so many in Game of Thrones. They're sort of passe in Game of Thrones now. There's a couple that stand out, namely Joffrey and Ramsay Bolton, because they had it coming. Mm. Laurie? It's really difficult to narrow down. The ones that immediately spring to mind, and if you haven't watched the original Star Wars trilogy, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously Vader? I haven't watched the original Star Wars tr- Oh no, I haven't watched all of it. I've watched portions. Uh, See? Sorry. It's uh, not that unusual. Stop the podcast. Ugh. It's not unusual. I just need a drink. I've got this grimy feeling in my mouth now. <laughs> 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 Whose death were you going to reference from that trilogy? Vader. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Yoda's was pretty good too, but probably Vader is the... Not Obi-Wan? The pinnacle of the series. No, no. Self-sacrifice was good, but Vader's turning from evil... To save his son, that was just oh, gasp, shock, horror, amazement, excitement, all of it. Any scene that involves the Wilhelm scream? Ah! <laughs> yes, exactly. And the other one that sprung to mind for some reason is opening up the Ark of the, spoiler alert, Indiana yes. Jones and the Temple of, no, Indiana Jones Lost Crusade, right? No. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Oh, of course it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, that's so good. Where they open up the Ark of the Covenant and all the evil escapes and tears the Nazis to shreds. Basically melts them. Ah, just classy stuff. Loved it. Good call. Uh, That's it for my questions. I hope it wasn't too depressing. It started off that way, but I wanted to (laughs) set the groundwork for how you wanted to die. You turned it around. Mm. Difficult subject matter. So, Laurie, why don't we get to scoring this thing and you tell us how we're going to. All right. So, it's scoring with me this week. Yes. One to five, as usual. No funny half scores this week. Or not a nine-point scale to really throw us off. (laughs) (laughs) It was eight. There were seven bells and there was eight. I see. My apologies. (laughs) One star. Always the pedantic. P-ness is a bit of a flop. (laughs) 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 Two, you had to be brave and it ended up... All right. You must get that so much. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, even I didn't, I didn't have it until then. <laughs> is that his real name? 
Yeah, because like the schoolyard Patrick must have Smith. been horrific. No wonder he can oh, write bullies God. so well. <laughs> yeah. Three? What a treat. Oh, God. Four. You started strong. No. Oh, it had real punch right in that jerk Harry's teeth. Huzzah! <laughs> oh, five. You loved it. It's disappointing that you, you really, you were so strong. It had punch. It had punch. That's four for you. What about you, Keith? I'm going with you loved it because I loved it. It's five. Yeah, it had punch for me too. Fantastic. That's five, four, four. And Keith, I'm sorry to break tradition, but I loved it too. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say I'm upset that you broke tradition. <laughs> it was excellent. Brilliant choice. Well done. Thank you. Next episode, The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Shabosky is another safe choice from Patrick Moon. <laughs> well, I've never read it, so don't give me this nonsense about it being a safe choice. Mm. I've got no idea. I've never heard of it. Are you serious? You sound surprised. It, it was massive. How long ago? Two years? Three years? Maybe four years now. More. Never heard of it. I think that's when the movie was out. I think the book might be a little bit older. Yeah, right. I'm just having a look. Perks of Being a Wallflower, 1998 or 9, isn't it? 999. Oh, really? That long ago? Yeah. When was the movie out? It was not that long ago. It was post-Harry Potter for Emma Watson. Right. What's it called? Perks of Being a Wallflower. No, never heard of it. Mm. I picked this one because I saw the movie and it was freaking fantastic. So I wanted to get into the book. Mm. I'm going to be interested in reading it because I saw the movie and was nonplussed. So... Mm-mm. Oh, you, you didn't... Next. Next episode. Oh, <laughs> This continues. I haven't seen the movie, but was very interested in the book. So we've got all bases covered here. Bree not knowing anything about it, me being interested in it, Laurie not liking the movie and Pat liking it. Oh, all bases covered. Am I going to have to cry again? Oh, I suspect so. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm sorry to put you through this emotional labour. I spent years avoiding books and movies that would make me cry. We've learnt tonight that avoidance is not the answer. Exactly. Well, (laughs) you know, I was quite happy going through my life with my facade. Wait. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Shit gets real. Until then, remember that we're all sliding inevitably towards death, destined to be nothing more than fading memories briefly in the minds of our friends and family. Not more than food for the worms and certainly less than an infinitesimally small and inconsequential blip in the great cacophony of the universe. And keep reading! (laughs) At least you're not called penis. The behemoth, uh, the behemoth, oh fuck, I knew I was going to screw it, behemoth, the behemothic, 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 behemoth, the behemothic. Is that a word? Yeah. I was going to say, did you look that up? I would double check. (laughs) He sounds like Walt reading his, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Asoscopus. The behemothic. Keith Rowe. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fuck it. The behemoth. Keith Rowe. Mm, thanks for that. <laughs> Lovely. Uh-huh.